keeps coming into my bed at night. He won't leave me alone. You know, when your father gets excited, police, priests, prayers, nothing is going to stop him. Oh, grow up. Amblin Entertainment presents Jack Lemmon, Ted Danson, Olympia Dukakis, Kathy Baker, and Ethan Hawke. The greatest man John Tremont ever met was the first one. Dad. Directed by Gary David Goldberg. Welcome back to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we reconnect with the films of Amblin' Entertainment to see what lessons and wisdom it has provided across generations, well, at least since 1981. And I am one half of your host, Andrew Godian. And I'm the other half of that very host, Joshua Glenn. (laughs) Welcome back to the show. Uh, Just us two today, but uh, we'll keep you in good company. Just the, uh, just the, just the rambling boys. Rambling just the rambling together. boys, the OG. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, my friend? Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm trying to think when the last time that you and I, I mean, I guess the last one that was just the two of us was Empire of the Sun, but that wasn't was. a very fun the, film the, to talk about. And it was also, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember watching that film feeling absolutely dreadful and dreading having to talk about it. it <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> So, I think it turned out well. <laughs> I think it turned out okay. So um, the good thing is, this is Dad. It's a film that we didn't know existed beforehand, and has apparently left precisely zero cultural footprint. So we we can mm. we can we can just toss this one off, can't we? <laughs> we can just we can phone this one. Of course, we're kidding. We never phone uh, anything. We never toss Dad off. <laughs> <laughs> a little spoiler. Oh no! Oh. I can't believe we're following our um, Land Before Time episode with this filth. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, it was right there, and I had to. It's, uh... I'm sorry. I mean, the 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 three listeners that we have right now are probably <laughs> thinking they're hovering their finger over the pause button. <laughs> Unsubscribe. Uh, got to get the laughs out now. <laughs> yeah, it's not a laugh riot, this film, is it, really? No. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, a, a spoiler for a bit later on. There's so little... <laughs> the cultural footprint is so little that there is <laughs> there's, there's nothing about how this film was made out there in the ether. So <laughs> we actually ended up doing quite a bit of research to try and find something to talk about on the <laughs> podcast. Strap in, folks. <laughs> so. Buckle in, but yeah, but yeah, here we are, man. The two of us again, and we've had mm-hmm. uh, we've had a couple of in-person meetings, uh, you know, since you know, since the since the last one. So it's nice to since feel the last one. Yeah. semi-normal again, isn't it? It is. It is. Even if it's going to see reminiscence. <laughs> <laughs> 
we contributed to the two million dollar box office. Yeah. <laughs> Bless it. I've been out yeah, out you. Yeah. <laughs> doing our bit. Doing our bit. Well, we can't really do our uh, what does Amblin mean to you or did you cry at ET business because we, we both know no. what the answer is. Have you watched those. ET again since ET and cried no, since? <laughs> 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 Neither have I. What's the last thing I watched? I'll check. I'll see what the last thing I watched and cried at was. Um, I oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what it was? I was uh, I was very hungover on Sunday, and uh, so I watched Notting Hill, and I cried <laughs> quite a lot on Notting Hill. <laughs> Sometimes it's only Hugh Grant that ne- that you need in these moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So handsome in that film. <laughs> So I take it you didn't cry at dad. Much as it wanted me to. No, I didn't. No, I mm. didn't. But I will, I mean, I, I will admit, I will cop to this, I did laugh a few times at dad. Okay, yeah. Couple of giggles. But we'll get, I've got a list of the bits that I enjoyed. It's not a very long list, but I have got a list of the bits that I enjoyed, which we can we can get stuck into uh, in a little bit. But uh, we're doing things a little different this week, folks. We've had a little switcheroo. Ooh. And your boy's taken on uh, the production context duties, maybe knowing full well that it would be much less, maybe thinking it would be much less work. But as it turned out, it was much more. <laughs> so, uh, old, uh, old old Godion, young Godion, uh, in between Indeed. Godion, do you want to uh, tell the good listeners what the hell Dad is about? Yeah, let me introduce you to Dad, folks. <laughs> uh, we begin by meeting a married elderly couple, Jake and Betty Tremont, played by Jack Lennon and Olympia Dukakis, who live together at their home in Los Angeles. The quiet and feeble Jake very much relies on the care of his more headstrong wife, who does everything for him from setting out his clothes to cooking his meals and taking them shopping. When Betty suffers from a heart attack at the grocery store one day, their daughter Annie, played by Kathy Baker, calls her brother John, played by Ted Danson, who is a successful but somewhat overworked business exec living in New York, and tells him about their mother's uh, state and condition. Worried for his mother, John heads home, and with Betty recovering in the hospital, he agrees to stay at their house and take care of his father. While spending time together, John encourages his dad to do more independent living again, and as Jake starts to do more around the house, as well as get out more and even take his driving test again, the father and son bond that they had becomes stronger than ever before. As his mother gets better and his father gains more confidence, John starts to realise what he's been missing in his life, which means also coming to terms with his estranged relationship with his own son, Billy, played by Ethan Hawke, who comes home to town to check in on his grandparents. Just as everything is looking bright, however, tragedy strikes when after seeing a doctor, John learns that his father might have cancer. Whilst John manages to convince his father to undergo exploratory surgery, he asks his dad's doctor, played by J.T. Walsh, not to mention the fact that cancer may be involved to his father, fearing it would only do him more harm than good. Choosing to ignore John's request, however, the doctor tells Jake of his cancer diagnosis, the shock of which causes Jake to seemingly turn senile and fall into a coma. Demanding a new doctor, a ferociously protective John, stays by his father's side even though there is very little hope of him waking up. When he miraculously does and appears to have made a full reinvigorated recovery, 
John can't believe his luck. However, it soon becomes clear that all is still not quite right with his old man. Mm-hmm. 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 That's, you've, that's a great job you've done there because we we're just we we're talking before recording about how difficult this is to summarise because mm. <laughs> it just kind of keeps on going, doesn't it? After a it while, runs a gomet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's dad in a nutshell, isn't it? And uh, yeah. So I, I think this has always been one we've kind of joked about in the past, uh, both on and off mic, about um, one of those just sort of non-existent Amblin films that, that mm. just has absolutely nothing in the way of any uh, any footprint uh, of any kind. So w- was there any awareness for you of this film before um, before we t- a- endeavoured upon this uh, project? Absolutely zilch. Like, really, <laughs> like, really stone-cold nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it must be something I've seen on a list at one point or another. Mm. Like I definitely looked at the Amblin Entertainment list of films one part of my life before deciding to do this. Yeah. And it clearly just didn't register amidst what it is <laughs> against, really. Yes, it's yeah. kind of sandwiched right in between like <laughs> quite big ones that uh, a lot of people know about, like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, yeah, Land Before yeah. Time, and then the next film we're doing is a Back to the Future sequel. So yeah, it's like really yeah. nestled in that, like that kind of the more uh, family, uh, like, uni- I guess, like, universal family adventure fair that Amblin's more really known for. And Dad's one of these ones that, uh, yeah, again, it just doesn't really fit, like, the kind of general idea that people would have of Amblin. And it's, no. yeah, it must have just, like, completely uh, <laughs> almost, like, omitted from my view just because it wasn't <laughs> yeah, one of the ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, on a purely uh, aesthetic uh, on a purely visual sense, you've got Land Before Time, Back to the Future Part Two, both pretty long titles, and you've got a three-letter word, Dad, sandwiched in between them. <laughs> you, you, your eyes will skip past that. And it's so yeah. nondescript. I'm surprised there aren't more films that are just called Dad. Mm. It's a pretty nondescript title, as far as these things go. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I've... Yeah, you the same. Nothing, had nothing, nothing, nothing going on. It's not even, not even a, a video cover that I recognise from the um, yeah, from the video. Despite shop. the fact it's got like quite a lot of actors that are very familiar with, like, yeah, Jack Lemmon and Ted Danson and yeah, Ethan Hawke. Ethan, yeah, I mean Ethan Hawke and Jack Lemmon are guys that I've gotten a bit more familiar with as I've gotten more into as I like more actively pursued film as a, as a, as an interest. Whereas Ted Danson yeah. was weirdly someone that I was quite familiar with as a kid. Like uh free man and a baby was, was one yeah. that I saw often. And oddly, I joked about it last episode, but getting even with dad, obviously because that starred Macaulay Culkin as Ted Danson's son. And there was a, a roller coaster. Does scene. that um, predate or uh, <laughs> post-date this? Probably post-date. It post, Macaulay, yeah. Right? It's, uh, we're talking me. I think. Oh, was it a post Home Alone McCallney? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it was Macaulay Culkin okay. as a, a more Ethan Hawke-aged kid. Um, right. Getting even with that, and that yeah, nineteen ninety four. Oh, nineteen ninety four. So he's not quite as old as Ethan um, Ethan Hawke, but he's got long hair though. Oh, you know who directed um... Getting Even with Dad? Yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. Howard Deutsch. Oh, okay. <laughs> father, of, father of Zoe, husband to uh, Leah Thompson. There, you there go. we go. Yeah. Anyway, what, what were you going to say? I wonder if anyone went to go see Getting Even with Dad, thinking it was the long delayed sequel to Dad, <laughs> 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 and being very shocked. <laughs> I, I would go on a limb and venture that Getting Even with Dad's probably a better film than Dad. Um, but there's a bit. Will you ever I, go I, back? <laughs> yeah, I will at some point. Yeah, when when things get desperate, 
uh, will. But I remember I because I, I one of the things that I loved about Home Alone so much was um, that it was a traps film, and that's yeah. one of my that's one of my uh, predilections when it comes to film. I love films that have a trap sequence in some way. Home Alone's a high watermark for that. And there was something in Getting Even with Dad. Maybe I'm conflating it with something like Baby's Day Out, but I have an image in my head of sort of these bumbling people undergoing... There's a bit with a garbage chute, I think, that he rides down, which is kind of trap-trap-esque. That does sound very 90s. It, yeah, it was very much <laughs> very much in my wheelhouse. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we can talk about Getting Even with Dad if you like. <laughs> I'm not sure I, I was that aware of Ted Danson as a kid. It's definitely no. in later years that when you learn of, like about Cheers and what have you. But I can't really... Yeah, I struggled to think of other films with Ted Danson that I would have seen. Yeah. Uh, particularly we, growing up. Well, we said, we've said... I think, was it... Um, we mentioned at one point, I think maybe it was the Money Pit episode, about how Cheers is very much a, a cultural blind spot for us, right? I've, yeah. I've, never, I've seen no Cheers. My, my Cheers knowledge is uh, bafflingly thin mm. so it's, yeah it's never, never been now's cheers the time. for me <laughs> well, you know last year would have been the time wouldn't it yeah <laughs> would have been ideal uh but no we're not uh we're not uh, unfortunately we're not here to talk about getting even with dad we are here to talk about 1989, <laughs> 1989's dad uh the filmic uh, directorial debut of one mr gary david goldberg and to date only one of two films that he's ever directed. The second being... Uh, <laughs> yes, 2005's... as a John Cusack vehicle, right? Is it John Cusack who's in that film? Yeah, yeah. One of those weird little mid-noughties um, rom-coms that he did. So, as we mentioned, there's really, really nothing on, on the sort of production side, um, context-wise, for this film. So we're going to, we'll talk a little bit about the sort of players that are involved, how this... Maybe came yeah. to be because I, I don't know. Um, I also like I also like the fact that it's um, set in LA, but yeah. um, was shot in Boston, and it very much looks like Boston, something <laughs> for LA. From... <laughs> That's the level of care that went into Dad, and the level of care with which the production notes on Wikipedia were filled out. <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll start talking about Mister Mister Goldberg. Mm. who is a man that, that listeners might recognise as somebody with tangential relations to Back to the Future, but we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, he cut his teeth as a writer for CBS's The Bob Newhart Show in 1976, which was followed by such widely known hits today as The Dumplings, The T- Tony Randall Show, and later CBS's Lou Grant, the latter of which gave him... My favourites! <laughs> <laughs> he formed his own company, Ubu Productions, in 1982, which he named after his Labrador retriever named Ubu Roy who died two years later on. Um, In 1982, he created uh, Family Ties, which is, again, a Mm -hmm. show that I've never seen any of, which is weird. No, I'm not sure if it really got to play much in the UK. I mean, people grew up in the 90s, correct me. Or the 80s. (laughs) Please do write in. I'm sure, I I feel like Griff might have been a Family Ties guy when he was was a younger (laughs) lad. Uh, Family Ties ran for seven seasons and was a critical and ratings hit, and it also helped launch the career of one Mr. Michael J. Fox. And if you remember from the Back to the Future episode, uh, Gary David Goldberg was the reason that Fox did not see the first offering of the script for that film because Mm. he was scared of letting him go um, that deep into the season. Uh, Goldberg would later go on to produce Spin City alongside uh, current hot favourite Bill Lawrence, hot on the (laughs) Ted Lasso 
drug right now, which I, I still desperately need to get into season two of. Very good. How it's how very good. This is good. <laughs> how, how how far along the season is it? Oh, is it close to the end? I think we're five episodes in. So like halfway through. I'm I'm waiting. Yeah. I'm, I'm a cheapo. I'm gonna wait till the whole <laughs> thing. Anyway, this is not interesting for the listeners. Sorry, guys. Um, uh, and also <laughs> Brooklyn Bridge, as well as directing his sole other credit, Must Love Dogs in 2005. Uh, but it was riding hot on the success of Family Ties, for which he won an Emmy, that he made his first stab at writing and directing a feature film, uh, which was Dad, based on the novel, uh, the 1981 novel by William Wharton, which Wharton drew from his own relationship with his own dying father. Uh, it was one of three Wharton novels to be adapted into a movie, as well as Birdie, which was directed by Alan Parker in 1984, and then later on, A Midnight Clear, which was directed by Keith Gordon in 1992, and which also stars a little Ethan Hawke. Yeah. <laughs> a little, little slightly older Ethan Hawke, just, <laughs> just pre-link later Ethan Hawke. Uh, the novel was well received, with the New York Times calling it so realistic that it couldn't be fiction, and something, I think, a now defunct a book review outlet called Kirkus Reviews said that it's a major novel from a writer whose magnitude has now been gloriously confirmed. And something that I I looked at the synopsis on Wikipedia for the book, and something that's quite interesting is that in the book, the protagonist, uh, John Tremont, is a middle-aged American artist living with his wife and hmm. children in Paris. He's not a divorced absentee Wall Street stockbroker. So that's quite an interesting uh, tweak that yeah. Goldberg seems to have made in the adaptation process. Obviously, nothing that would explain why he did that, uh, because there's nothing in terms of production history online for this film. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite. I mean, maybe that's. I've never seen Spin City, but I, that, that's kind of like slick. Is that set on Wall Street, or is that um, a legal show? I don't actually know. I've never seen any of Spin City. No, me neither. I can just sort of picture a, a slick back um, Michael J. Fox. Yeah, just a men in suits show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I do feel like he... Oh, he's mayor. Oh, this is a kind of... Ah. But yeah, uh, I guess that makes sense with the name like uh, Spin City. But I feel <laughs> like um, Goldberg... You were talking mid-late 80s here. He he will have felt more of a, a, a kinship, perhaps, or at least more of a cultural Yeah, and it's, it's very much that guy. kind of like 80s yuppie character, isn't it? That yeah, is yeah. quite like has quite a presence in a lot of these films. Yeah. It's to kind of at the time. And uh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't have like enough kind of attention to the detail of what it actually is that he does for a living to really, no. <laughs> no, <it doesn't. laughs> to really be a, like a big, big significant change that like feels really justified, but Hey ho, it's a shortcut, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And they do kind of make stabs. There are bits when Danson and Lemon have a chat about, uh, like mm. Lemon, his whole ethos is um, I used to work hard as a young man, maybe too hard at the expense of being with his family. Uh, it was a lot of physical, manual labour, and he was like a proud, rough-handed father figure. Whereas Danson's job is to—I don't—I'm not a, a man of uh, of finance, so I don't really understand what these things are. But he he he, it was he all buys very out vague failing business talk in a it room. It's vague, it? like <laughs> it's vaguely sort of buying out failing businesses and like strip mining them for their assets, like the land that they're on and the yeah know, the equity that's tied up. I don't I don't really know. But yeah, but the, I guess there's kind of an attempt to draw a contrast there generationally between a mm. man who built stuff and a man who tears things down. But whatever, it's not very well done. Give a shit. <laughs> Wasted time movie. <laughs> um. um 
Uh, I did. So that's that's kind of that's what the movie is. And then the the, the next big thing, like, I think the kind of thing that does give this film the life, the the, the flickers of life that it has, is the casting, which is pretty mm. uh, pretty inarguably well done. I think you could say. I got a little bit excited doing a dive into Jack Lemmon, who's um. Uh, a legend of Hollywood's late golden age, and he's a guy that mm-hmm. we should do a Jet Lemon podcast, man. <laughs> just talk about that guy for a long time, but I'll try. I'll Sour try lemons. and keep this brief. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, try and, I'll try and keep the history of Jack Lemon brief, just sort of contextualize where he is when Dad comes along. So after his, um, he made his leading man debut in uh, It Should Happen to You in 1954. He was described by the New York Times as a warm and appealing personality. The screen should see more of him. And that, I think, is something that, even in his more dramatic and, and sourer roles, that kind of really nicely sums up his screen persona, just to sort of, maybe sometimes a bit of a try-hard, bit of a huckster, but generally a warm, appealing, very, very charming yeah. guy to watch, and just radiates that niceness. Uh, he won his first Oscar in 1956 for, John, for the John Ford joint Mr. Roberts, and ultimately gravitated towards Billy Wilder in the late 50s, with whom he arguably did his most famous work, which includes the likes of Some Like It Hot and The Apartment, which both brought him further Oscar nominations. Uh, he was nominated for another Oscar for 1962's Days of Wine and Roses, his first collaboration with Blake Edwards, in which he plays a young alcoholic businessman. This was his first foray into over-drama. I guess The Apartment is a lot sourer and bitterer than... Yeah, it would initially appear, but this was much more of a, a sort of pun intended sobering, hard hitting drama about you know struggles with addiction and that kind of thing. And, uh, and Lemon said that it was as important a film as he'd ever done in a later interview because it sort of showed the world that yes, I can do serious serious work and I don't have to rely on sort of light screwball comedy and that kind of stuff. Uh, in the mid sixties, he began a long and fruitful comedy collaboration with Walter Matthau beginning with A Fortune mm-hmm. Cookie in 1966 and including the Neil Simon adaptation The Odd Couple in 68 and Lemon's sole directorial credit, Koch, in 71. Have you ever seen any of those Matthau-Lemon uh, collaborations, Andy? No, I've heard um, <laughs> tales of how awful The Odd Couple 2 is. <laughs> yeah. that was in the... What? what? Oh Christ! That must have been in the nineties. That was one of his last yeah. last movies. But yeah, but I've never seen any of the. I remember the fortune cookie being on Channel Four a lot. I don't know why. <laughs> I just remember seeing that in the Radio Times a lot. <laughs> um, no, I haven't seen any of either. So I always, I always associate Walter Matthau with this sort of. You know, he had that. It was like in the seventies. He had that um, Charlie Varick. Taking a pillow, one, two, three, kind of yeah. crime thriller revamp, and that—that's—I always thought that's who he was as a baseline, and it was only later that I realised. Oh no, he, he used to do comedies. Sort he's of a funny that. guy. Yeah, he's a funny guy. <laughs> well, as, as a as a guy that was um, that was raised on Dennis, the the Walter Matthau starring Dennis the Menace movie, I've <laughs> been aware that he was a funny guy. Um. So after those, Lemon was nominated for a few more Oscars. Uh, he won again in Just 74 for Save the Tiger. Uh, so he was nominated eight times and he won twice. Uh, the early Not 80s, bad innings. That's pretty good, <laughs> isn't it, that? 
The early 80s saw him in a long string of flops, and he turned to the stage in uh, 1986 for a revival of Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey Into Night on the West End, his first time acting on London's stage. He stayed there for a few years, doing a few other plays, uh, until the poor reception of Veterans Day shut it down, and he came back to L.A., uh, slightly at a low ebb, bless him. So he wasn't at his career peak when Dad came along. Um, and there's, there's not, it's kind of, you know, when you have, it's the same with a lot of old Hollywood directors and you kind of see their later credits like sporadically throughout the 80s and 90s. And it is kind of a sad yeah. petering out. I mean, I guess Lemon has um, Glengarry Glen Ross a few mm-hmm. years after this, which is a, a good, a good kind of uh, swan song for him, even though it's not yeah, his final very role. Much so. He does get another good role or two after this. Uh, and one thing of note as well is that the character of Jake Tremont is actually 14 years older than Lemon actually was, because Lemon was only about 65, 64 mm. when this was made. So there's a lot of extensive makeup used to age him up. And the makeup team... It's pretty good. Yeah, they, they do a pretty good job. They were Oscar nominated. Old makeup. Yeah. <laughs> Ken Diaz, Greg Nelson, and Dick Smith were the, the makeup team that were nominated for the 1990 Academy Award for Best Makeup. But do you know, I mean, also nominated that year was uh, Baron Munchausen. Do you know who they both lost to? Hmm. 1990 Oscars. No, I'm stumped. It was it was the big winner of that year, much to everyone's chagrin. Uh, Driving Miss <laughs> Daisy. Uh, drive, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. We I get the sense it's like oh sterling makeup work. We've <laughs> <laughs> given it best film. Just give it all the other ones that no one can be asked to really think about too much. That's the impression <laughs> I get with that. Um, oh yes, yeah, so it's not not the sort of not the finest work, is it? Uh, playing Betty Tremont is Olympia Dukakis, who is someone. I mean, I, I was a weird kid, and another one of my weird kid viewings was Look Who's Talking. That was when we had on we had a double video of Look Who's Talking and Look Who's Talking Too. And she plays um, Kirstie Alley's mum in that in those movies. <laughs> so I, I watched those films on repeat. So Limpy Dukakis was someone that I I know very well at, at least <laughs> at this stage in her career because that look is talking came out the same year as this. So I know mm, her very I, very. Clearly I'd forgotten she was in those before, like yeah. kind of just clicking on her name and doing a bit of a deeper dive. But yeah, yeah. I remember those. Never had the VHSs back again. It's one that can really picture it next to the Nutty Professor yeah, on the video store. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing in the M section. Just go straight from the talking and late yeah. in the Ns as well. That isn't it. Well, they, they were the ones that were like out front from the ones right, that you could purchase see. rather than just rent. And uh, <laughs> for some... <laughs> I don't know why those were the two. I've never stopped to think about why those were the two. <laughs> <laughs> oh my well uh, hey, hey the 90s uh, was a weird time who knew only, why uh, video stores did anything no, who knows the rhyme or reason and it clearly worked on guys like us because we're still talking about it now yeah, on a podcast it in 20 plus years later on um so sorry olympia uh, i mean also let's raise a glass to olympia who passed away a few months mm. ago this year i, I didn't realize she did that. yeah um, she began as a stage actor um, for a long, long time, back in 1961, and she won an Obie two years later in 63. And then alongside her husband, Louis Zorick, she co-founded the whole theatre company in the mid-70s, where she served as artistic director. Sick. <laughs> she, she, uh, <laughs> she had a number of bit parts in films during this time, but her silver screen career really took off with 87's Moonstruck. 
which is ah. um, a lot of like I think that, like it feels like a nexus point for a lot of different people. I've never seen that film it does, in its yeah. entirety, but it does feel like a pretty crucial building block for a lot of different folks in the in the eighties. And I guess we'll talk about Moonstruck in what yeah. episodes time quite a bit. John Patrick's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the year after exactly. Moonstruck, uh, she starred in Working Girl before, as we said, playing Kirstie Alley's mum in Lucky's Talking and uh, Clay, Clay, Clary, uh, I've never seen this one, Clary <laughs> Belcher in Steel Magnolias, uh, which both came out in the same year as Dad. So a pretty, pretty stacked year. Good for, 89. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, she, she had a good one. Uh, very, very, like very much a late 80s, uh, you know, peak, it seems for her. Yeah. Um, and then we have then we have Ted Danson playing their son, um, John. <laughs> to just double check his name, <laughs> John. I, I What's him. the first name you can think of? <laughs> <laughs> oh, John. To uh, Danson, he, he was sort of bounced around the acting scene in TV bit parts throughout the seventies, but he, he broke out in eighty two when he was cast as what Wikipedia calls the womanizing former baseball player and bartender Sam Malone in Cheers. <laughs> Yes, sounds very Garth Marenghi, womanizer, yeah. former baseball player, and bartender. <laughs> Which, uh, by uh, 86, uh, Cheers was one of the top ten shows on television. Uh, it was in a few movies in the early 80s, including Creep Show, and to bring him up again, another Blake Edwards film, A Fine Mess, uh, before starring in the biggest American box office hit of 1987, the aforementioned Three Men and a Baby. A good film for hair. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> so Star was pretty high by the time Dad came along, because Cheers ran until, I think, 91. Right? Early 90s. I'll double-check that for you, but I want to say yes. I think it was 91. I, looked, I saw came. it. <laughs> yeah. So he was still... He was still... He was still Sam. Or maybe he'd left by this point. I don't know Cheers well enough to really discuss Cheers in any <laughs> significant depth. But he was either still on Cheers or by this point he'd just left Cheers. Not entirely it sure. finished in 1993. Mmm. Hot damn. So, yeah. But do you know if we... I, should, I mean, I should have... Oh no, it finished in 97. <laughs> Where oh, am I getting 93 sh- from? <laughs> that is mad. So what, 15, 15 years it went on for, Cheers? Yeah. That is insane. The- and Ted Danson to wait. I'm surely so Danson was I've not nothing for the entire time. No, it was not. It was nineteen eighty two to nineteen ninety three. I was right the first. Time. <laughs> and then, oh yes, yeah, and it, and it was, uh, yeah, and it was there. Sam Malone, it was there for all two hundred and seventy five episodes. I'm sure that fans of Cheers, oh, if damn. any of them are listening to us right now, are shaking yep, their fists. We butchered it. it. <laughs> um, I don't know everybody's name. <laughs> <laughs> The only so yeah so yes uh, yes so it was still it was still on uh, it was still on Cheers one of the top ten shows in America and it was in 1987's uh, biggest film of the year Three Men and a Baby uh, in America biggest film he's and, hot uh, shit right he's now. hot shit when he comes to Dad although according to IMDb trivia which I, I do want to return to in a little bit he was apparently a late replacement for James Caan mm, which I can picture yeah. Yeah, you can see Khan as, um, but I, yeah, how old? Because Khan will have still been young-ish. Remember what in his in his forties, maybe closer to the age of the um, character in the book. Yeah, maybe. I think that um, was the idea initially. Yeah. Which is just... 
always have uh, Jack Lennon with the age-old yeah. makeup if they were <laughs> going to do that makeup. anyway. It doesn't really... <laughs> <laughs> Um, age old <laughs> so they they are they are the the, the dad the mum and the son and then as the son of the son was Ethan Hawke who doesn't have much to talk about really up until this point we've mentioned him briefly in the Inner Space episode when we talked about 1985's Explorers which was of course his debut uh, mm-hmm. and then he starred as Toph Anderson no I don't think that's not right is it it's not Toph it's Ted is it Ted I think uh, Todd. Auto- it's Todd. 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 I think yeah. I because the D keys next to the F key, so I wrote Todd right in my <laughs> <Toph> notes. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose he was a bit of a tough, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember that film very well. Uh, in in uh, in Dead Poet Society, and this is something that you brought to my attention, and we, we will put a link to this in the description. But there's a pretty yeah. adorable video on YouTube of um, during the filming of Dead Poet Society. A bunch of the the actors, so Rob uh, Robert Shaw Leonard, Ethan Hawke, Josh Charles, Gail Hansen, and James Waterston, uh, took a break from filming to travel to New York City and audition for the part. The Hawke ultimately won. Uh, it's a sweet little, a sweet little. It's very uh, sweet. It's very funny. Capsule, isn't it? Yeah. Shot quite yeah. nicely as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a good bit where they get stuck on a roof before the audition's about to happen. <laughs> I think the, the, the best, more that than the best dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then rounding out the, uh, the 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 people of note in the film, you've got Edward Scissorhands, Kathy Baker. Uh, she's been in many more things, of course, but that's that I always see her as the uh, as the um, the would be seductress in Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And there's Annie Trevant, who's uh, who's John's sister, and then you have some creep with a mustache as her husband, uh, and one Mario. little <laughs> Mario. Yeah, oh, I'll take that out. Take that out. Uh, he's called Mario, <laughs> and he and he's shit. He is shit. And what I do love, <laughs> what I love is that he ke- he's a real sycophantic little slime ball who keeps trying to suck up to Olympia Dukakis. Yeah, and she keeps shitting on him. She keeps shitting all over him. <laughs> Not literally, but just shutting him, shutting his butt down like Tarantino. <laughs> and it's uh, very satisfying. Uh, and one one other little thing that the IMDb trivia coughed up was that Jack Lemon's son Chris plays Jake in the flashback scenes in those sort of cornbread pastoral flashback yeah. scenes of the film. Because um, I, I did have a beat where in those flashbacks, well, flashbacks yeah. in those scenes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, you the listener didn't I mean. see and Andrew did inverted commas just then, but yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I did have a moment where it's like, wow, he really looks like a young Jack Lemon. <laughs> Yeah, and then, yeah. of course. <laughs> that makes sense. And then the only other real thing uh, to round this whole, uh, you know, ramble context off is it was released in the US on the 27th of October, mm. 1989, making $27 million off of a budget of $19 million. Dodgers? Dollars. And, uh, and yeah, and as we've he said... He does love the Dodgers, does Dad. <laughs> <laughs> And then it sunk and vanished without a trace. <laughs> and there were two. There were two little things that, uh, because we were trying so hard to find something to sort of talk about to give us film context, I did scour IMDb mm. trivia. And there's a couple of things I do want to point out. There's one thing I want to read out verbatim, which really made me okay. go. Um, 
So Dad is one of two 1989 cinema movies starring Ted Danson that were first released in that year. The movies are Dad, 1989, and Cousins, 1989. Both <laughs> pictures had titles that were familial relative descriptor names and had family-related storylines. So thank we've you for that one, Ames. We've broken Dad wide open. It's changed the game, that tri- <laughs> bit of trivia. It's really changed and, the game. <laughs> and then, so Threadbare is a trivia page that um, it states that Gary David Goldberg either wrote or dire- wrote and or directed the film in eleven different entries. So there's eleven different permutations <laughs> of this film was written and directed by Gary David Goldberg. <laughs> Just at a point where you can like scroll on down to okay, this is looking quite healthy, is it? Wait a second, <laughs> yeah, this is all just are... insane stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is all about Gary David Goldberg. <laughs> uh, so that's that. That was there anything that's... else that you found in your travels, Sandy? No, not really. I think you've literally kind of every stone you've unturned. I also looked at that. <laughs> I don't really have any other bit of context to add beyond like. Yeah. Um, I wonder what it was that kind of inspired Gary David Goldberg to make this his feature debut after mm. like a successful time on a TV show. And what was it about it then then also meant that he didn't then direct another film for 15 years? Yeah. <laughs> was he just like, just going with a vibe? I, I really wish we had more of a definitive answer. I know. Well, he did. He wrote a film. He wrote and produced a film. He, sorry. He co-wrote and produced a film in 1984. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm all over the place today. He co-wrote and produced a film in 1995 called Bye Bye Love. Uh, but yeah, right. that was kind of bang in the middle of Dad and Must Love Dogs. And then he stars in uh, No Strings Attached in 2011. And that's that's kind of <laughs> that's it as far as his big screen work goes. So you are right. You, you got to wonder what. Uh, Clearly a man who, yeah, very... I mean, it doesn't always work whenever people who have had super massive success on TV and then go to try and make a film. It doesn't always translate no. as well as, I guess, kind of the lukewarm critical reception and the clearly pretty tepid box office of this demonstrated. Yeah. Despite the fact that it what did also have... And what I imagine for particularly like Spielberg and Kennedy... And Marshall and Goldberg himself, yeah. who was a producer on this, they must have been quite hopeful that this would be a quite big Oscar player being adapted by yeah. on a best-selling book, which has the kind of like elements of drama that really kind of typifies what you think of as like the kind of Oscar baity sort of titles, where it is just kind of like that it's going for like human drama of like yeah. big emotional. Um, issues and uh, that a lot of people will face in their lifetime yeah with their uh, parents and ultimately their them aging and their kids having to kind of reconcile their own feelings with that it's all very kind of like fertile uh, yeah. dramatic oscar territory and you can imagine they were probably a little disappointed when it kind of came out the way it did and didn't make that that splash yeah yeah and i i, I was disappointed with the, like the fact that it's very much sold as like a comedy drama and uh, for a comedy drama i it it leans certainly more on the drama <laughs> let's just say i i thought it was i thought it was pretty miserable because it it, it, it just yeah. it go it goes it it ladles it on folks it, it's oh, uh boy. 
it, yeah. <laughs> what were your like first impressions of Dad when you kind of talked me through the motions of yeah. the kind of ways of feeling towards it as you were going through well, it? Because I, I did have ebbs and flows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I watched it last night and I was sort of texting you. Um, I mean, I'm not in the habit of, of being on my phone when I'm watching the film, but this was honestly, guys, it was such a bloody slog after a point that I, mm, I had to sort of seek relief. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I was texting you my thoughts, and um, initially it opens on this, uh, again, this sort of, like, pastoral view of, of like, uh, a farm hand opening up the ranch, and there's this real kind of twinkly, corny... It's uh, James Horner score, isn't it, for this movie? Yeah, it is. James Horner's back once again. Yeah, and it's like, it, it, it does... It not has, one of his best works? No, it's not. <laughs> it has, like, a lifetime movie. It's, uh, it, yeah. it, it looks flat and overly lit, and any kind of... It has that twinkly daytime, lifetime movie sound to it. And and, and for the first... Um, like, from the first shot, I thought, oh, Christ, we're in for an uphill battle here, aren't we, guys? And, you know, you have that bit when he, he's this emaciated figure, Jack Lemmon, and he's sort of being carted around by his wife, Valentina Dukakis, and... Mm. And it it really heavily sort of points towards what it's what it's going for, and then obviously Olympia Dukakis falls ill, and Ted Danson is called up to come and and sort of see her and help looking look after Jack Lemon. And I have to admit, once you get Danson and Lemon in, in in the room together, and it's when Danson comes in that Jack Lemon says his first line, which I think is "Hello, John" or something, because he, he's hmm. been he's been away for a while. A lot of those scenes between those two, they settled into quite a nice groove for me. I quite enjoy yeah. it. It's quite a gentle... I mean, it's not going to change anyone's world, but there was, I think there's about... Uh, it's about 20... About 15, 20 minutes of the two of them doing business together that I thought were quite quite charming, quite gentle, quite pleasant. Um, you, you get some good kind of vintage lemon. Uh, not vintage, but you get some good... You see some of that sort of 1960s lemon glint come through. Like, yeah, there's definitely the energy yeah. coming through. I'm um, going to learn how to do all those things. You'll see. Oh, we'll fool her, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And then they're trying to figure out the washing machine. And there's a bunch of little scenes that kind of play like, like not, not quite sketches, but at least like three panel comic strips. Like they're trying to figure out the washing machine. And the capture that scene is them at the dry cleaners, you know, and then there's, um, there's yeah. like, there's, <laughs> they go to the bingo hall because that's what Jack Lemon you know, and did did for fun, um, and Ted Danson's really bored because he's used to sort of like you know, cocaine fueled Wall Street exca- um, escapades. Uh, but then he gets he wins, so he gets really into it, and there's quite a nice capper there when he comes home at the end, making plans to to travel to like Reno to do more bingo and stuff. And I think there's a really there's quite a nice ish. Uh, and there's that pretty funny gag when they bump into friends of Jack Lemons and then yes. tell him about all, all the all the mutual friends who've died. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. All that bonding it's stuff all, it's is all really quite nice, isn't it? It's really quite nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like it, uh, again, it, like you say, it's not. You can pretty much imagine how a lot of this is going to kind of patter out in terms of how the uh, motions of this kind of like bonding go. But what I thought was quite nice is that they, yes, they established that kind of Ted Danson is. Uh, very much, he's literally on the East Coast. He's very far away and mm-hmm. he does have a disconnected relationship with his own son. But when he is with his family, there's clearly like no like sense of just kind of like resentment between mm-hmm. anyone. There is still quite a lot of affection, which I thought was actually quite a nice touch. Yeah. I thought it was going to be a bit more of this kind of put cliched play on a strange son coming home and yeah. uh, having it's more that like he's just 
somewhat lost touch and lost sight of them rather you don't get the sense it's out of any sort of sense of malice it's rather it's just you just kind of let it happen rather yeah. than like being it driven by any kind of like negative feeling towards them yeah yeah definitely which is quite nice I like, and it yeah. allows the bonding to like cement well because you know there's there is that kind of like base level of respect and like kind of that sense of of father and son dynamic particularly of that generation where they're not like that openly emotional and it's nice that like a lot of this narrative is about these kind of two men who have a certain idea in their heads of what it is to be yeah a father and what it is to be manly have those kind of broken down yeah um that that yeah that particularly both in those bonding moments and yeah more overarching in the whole thing that was one of the strongest elements for me because like, like what it boils down to is yeah like you say these two men who have respectively like 1950s and 1980s so like post-world war Two and reaganite images of what being a man is uh it's about two guys like that who were emotionally constipated just learning to hug and that that mac that sort of um macro art is nice and i can definitely i'm a hugger man i mean yeah in 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 in, in covid safe as long as you know people are double, double jabbed <laughs> and, and you know, comfortable with it I'd, parties consenting uh, <laughs> exactly exactly i think uh it's nice to hug and we're both emotionally open guys so i it, it's a you know it's the kind of message that you can get behind I think on on the macro, but there is just something like at the end of that nice little montage of the two of them having fun and bonding. You have the shot, yeah, of them and playing. even like even Hawk Hawk coming yeah. back, yeah, into yeah, it, and then it's around about oh, that point, good. yeah, because there's a shot of the two of them playing catch on the front lawn, and it's sort of magic <laughs> hour as the sun's setting, and I thought, oh shit, Jack Lemmon's gonna die. That's what this movie's about, like, <laughs> and it, yeah. it goes on for so long that like. <laughs> And they're not saying anything to each other. It's just like just keeps fading in between shots of them playing cats. And I was just like, oh, you didn't need that. <laughs> you didn't need that. <laughs> so is that where it started to really go off the rails for you then around that? Around I that think time? so, because like, um, and I do think like the stuff of Ethan Hall particularly isn't quite as well. Like there's one conversation later on in the film that we'll get to, but like initially I yeah, don't think that's yeah. kind of as well developed if just because the, I feel like the chemistry between Danson and Lemon's a bit more feels mm. a little more tangible and genuine. Um, but yeah, as I kind of hinted to in the synopsis up up top, there's quite a lot of twists to uh, Jack's kind of state of he- Jake's sorry state of health um, as the film goes along. As he um, as Betty's getting better, he has a cancer scare, has this exploratory surgery, wakes up. Um, uh, just kind of, and and all the doctors kind of just think he's gone senile because he's um not making any sense and he's completely bewildered and there's this there's this very odd beat between because he then falls into a coma but there's this odd beat in between when he does fall into the coma um where um Ted Danson's very aggressive to towards the doctor that has gone against his wishes it's and it's a scene that there's like it's played out quite statically and to it doesn't really cut it just kind of follows ted danson's actions and the yeah and it he does kind of get that ferocious nature across but then it's undercut by this moment where he doesn't want his dad around the doctors anymore and he is being very ferociously protected to the point where you are concerned that he's not doing the right thing but yeah. then the film kind of has him carrying out his dad <laughs> and has this re- like really triumphant chord of music as he's 
doing it, carrying it out like he's doing this righteous thing and like kind of going against, um, like and, and like it, the film for beat really feels like it's like really doesn't like doctors. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember that bit, bit playing out and being really weirdly discordant. And then that's immediately followed by like this really quite affecting scene of when he's like no i'm just gonna look after him at home whilst his dad is like his mind is pretty much completely gone at this moment um and he is just uh very much like inactive and to the point until when he does start talking and it's not not something that makes sense and he's having weird um visions of repairing a car in a uh, in his past and then resulting in him having this kind of moment where he like doesn't know where he is at all and then he does take him back to hospital gets a different doctor and he goes into the coma and there is this kind of the beat where they let Ted Danson kind of realize that he's not gonna be able to look after his dad I thought was quite effective in how kind of like bare and sparse it was Mm. with like and a, a little unflinching with how he's like just having to kind of try and be capable but is clearly just not very equipped for dealing yeah. with what is happening to his dad even yeah. if it's done and built up in that kind of like ham-fisted very aggressive yeah manner beforehand <laughs> but you have that i mean what yeah i do agree and you have that bit when uh jake is hiding under the bed and, and, and john john thinks he might have done a runner from the house and is you know, terrified with worry trying to find him and he finds him yeah. under the bed and tries to get him out, and it's like trying to get a cat out from under the bed. He's like clawing at him and scratching him, and and he has that, and which is you know everyone everyone's struggle with dementia is is different, but that th- that is an ugly permutation of dementia, yeah. isn't it? It's like you, you you lose the person, and they can get when they get confused, they can get violent. Some like in some cases, and you know, I, it is yeah. I mean, aside from the way it's framed. And the way it's scored, which is like you say, you're just ladling it on way too thick. There is like a nugget of quite unvarnished truth to that, and yeah, but it, it, it's just it's oh, it's buried beneath. Which so kind of speaks a, a lot to like how many like to the general turns that this movie takes. Yeah, that yeah. there is such a kind of heavy-footed approach to it, mm. but like in between that, it does trip up on a nugget every now and again. Yeah, it's kind of it, 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 bounding on because it really does run like a huge like emotional gauntlet yeah. really yeah with like touching on big like themes and all the kind of all the kind of big expectant themes but um well in a way all in a way all the big expectant mm. themes i think the main thing i kind of felt with it was it was telling a narrative where kind of like um the dealing with dementia probably would have made quite a worthy cause to explore and more filled out or the kind of dealing with cancer anxiety and mm-hmm. owned kind of like facing mortality anxiety would have also probably have been enough by itself. Yeah. Um, but they choose to do both of those things. But, and then you're like, okay, you, you are laid, you are going quite, yeah, you're hitting all the kind of cliches with these things. And also again, occasionally finding um, moments of truth within it, but it's like, they're really layering it on. And then, when you think that 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 is enough kind of weight to hold in the car, it throws out one more, yeah, one more twist in the kind of uh, fate for Jake when he does wake up from the coma mm. and he seems to have made a full recovery. 
um, and ha- he's like really energetic. He's going around all the neighbors' houses. He's really chatty with everyone around him. He's got he's his sex drive back. Get- he's got his sex drive back. He's getting uh, Betty to like babysit the neighbors' kids with him, and he wants to get into learning about different cultures and different foods and different customs. And um, it's uh, Betty who starts to like really be saying to everyone, "This isn't right. He's not." He doesn't feel like the same person, and it, it then he then gets diagnosed with the fact that he's been suffering from schizophrenia for the last twenty years, and has always imagined this other life for himself that went slightly differently to the one he did lead, one that's a bit more kind of features a more carefree, joyful him, who's free to do what he wants, has multiple kids, has more than uh, uh, just John and. Annie and yeah. they live out on a farm and that's what these dreamscape images we have been seeing actually are and um I just remember at that point just going okay 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 um <laughs> I don't really know what yeah. the uh which kind of it it gets to a point where it just feels a little too ridiculous for something yeah. that wants to wants you to take the drama really seriously yeah. it's just yeah. it's really piled it onto the pack where you 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 kind of you just back away a bit yeah. from kind of any credibility it has and it feel, it feels very jarring um and there's well yeah there's there's a couple of things there i remember the one thing <laughs> talking about films that are dramatically affecting factory's not included is not a film that i hold in, in too high a regard but talking about it with you and steph in our episode um a mm. few episodes back really like enjoyable conversation and you both made very good points about how well that handles the idea of of dementia and it's not it's not like a, a glib fix-it solution to it. It's not the film never implies that dementia is something that has an easy fix or that indeed can be fixed. It's something you've got to learn to manage and live with. And it's quite yeah. a, a nicely um, realistic solution in an otherwise pretty fantastical, silly film. Whereas in, in a film that, like this that is ostensibly much more, you know, straight down the middle, capital D drama, mm. it has such a silly pretty offensive uh view of it i think ultimately because it, it does it borrows a lot of the behavioral and visual language of dementia but then it adds these ridiculous fantastical elements in there that really undermine any serious genuine emotional investment and i don't know it just it kind of, it kind of bothered me how it would invoke it but also introduce these, yeah. these fantasy rules to deal with it it's just it's not we talked briefly a minute ago about that scene when Ted Danson takes him home and tries to deal with him then, and that has some of the nastier, scrappier elements to it. But then, to sort of for the for the for the sort of the closing bracket of that opening bracket to be, <laughs> he's actually this schizophrenic who's got this uh, this condition where he's disappeared into a, a, a parallel other world that he is also lucidly aware yeah, of. Yeah, and he also know. thinks it's 35 years in the past, something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it, it just it felt, it felt cack-handed and insulting and and just embarrassing. <laughs> you know, but the yeah, second it, thing... No, yeah, sorry, sorry, go on, keep going. I, I was going to no, pivot into going. a... I was going to pivot into a new point, but... Uh, yeah, I was just going to... I was just going to say more about how... Um, yeah, it does kind of undermine the kind of any sense of, um, not any sense, but like the kind of sincere approach to the genuinely like quite 
big journeys that a lot of people will go on in their lives with um either dealing with cancer or dementia or yeah even yeah sadly, absolutely both yeah. in some cases i'm sure but uh, to yeah. add this kind of extra layer on top of it just felt like it was just really driving the kind of melodrama deeper into it to the fact to the point where it was like kind of hurting the good will it had it it had yeah. kind of conjured up in other areas yeah and and my the, the big burn of contention the, the sort of second point i wanted to move on to was um even beyond that the ultimate implication is that he's he's uh, living in this fantasy world because he's in a relationship with a woman who is, you know, strong and, you know, uh, self-possessed. And that has emasculated him to the extent that he has created this fantasy for himself. And that the only way he can be happy is if she kind of subsumes her wants and needs into what will ultimately be better for him. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's... Cause you, and it does play into those images at the start that you see of Dukakis and Lemon together and she is the one, she's sort of guiding him, almost like holding his hand and guiding him through. And he's very, very, uh, really sort of diminutive in stature. And, and he, he, you know, doesn't speak for a while. She does all the speaking for him. And, you know, that is how a lot of relationships go, where one partner, you know, um, one, one sort of one partner retains their mental lucidity longer than the other one does and ultimately has to look after them. And it's a, it's a real dynamic and no one should be judged for how they behave in that situation because it's you know imagine the person that you love more than anyone else in the world that you've sort of literally grown old with slipping away from you it's it's really sad it really it's a, such a horrifyingly sad thing to imagine and, and everyone goes through it you know uh, at, yeah. at some point but the fact that the film ultimately paints her treatment of him as something close to villainous or certainly as something that kind of contributes to towards his emasculation, which is the worst fate possible for a man. Really, fucking piss me off, man. And like, what it also the, the film does kind of cast her as a villain towards the end. And like you say, when she starts to realise that what he's going through might not be a sign that is all fixed, but it should be something that that everyone should take note of and look into. Um, that's very yeah. that's very rational, but that ultimately curdles into physical aggression and, 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 and jealousy and it's painted like I've done my bit, I deserve to have my time with my feet up kind of thing and it's like Danson even says at one point, I think he's having a heart to heart with uh, is he is he talking to Ethan Hawke's character or is he even talking to, no I think it's a scene when um, when Ted Danson's talking to, to Jack Lemmon and he's, he like cops to being embarrassed by having a dad who was dominated by his mother and there's just it ultimately gets to this toxic place where it says that the happiness and the status of a man in a family unit is more important than the you know the self actualization or even like mm. basic happiness or satisfaction of the woman and I, I, and, and even like even at the very end when you have you have a, a, a few sort of like parent father son heart to hearts in a row and it ultimately uh, it, it, it sort of fades into the wake for for Jack Lemmon's character. Um, and you see everyone sort of solemnly making their little small talks around the house in, in their in their black funeral wear. And Olympia Dukakis is sitting there wearing uh, Jake's old hat that he always said she never used to like, surrounded by the neighborhood children that he kind of forced upon her. And you think, okay, so in the film's eyes, her redemption is that she's living out his life. She's not getting the later life that she wanted. 
she's kind of you know mm. living out his life and, and it, it, I don't know it, it just kind of there was a really insidious uh, underlying like simmering under the surface toxicity to the way this film treats gender roles I don't know if that's something that you you know that, if that, that bothers yeah. you or or, or, or if, if if I'm just no, it, it definitely was in terms of the Betty character, and particularly the way in yeah. how, um, also Ted Danson just or his character struck like really struggles to kind of acknowledge mm. what it must be like for her to also go through this, yeah, and her husband, uh, radically a, change, and then being told that it's her so fault dirty. for yeah, yeah, having a, exactly for having loved him for fifty years and it just being a bit like yeah. um, what yeah, <laughs> like you, you loved him, you loved him too much. You how dare you love him and also be your own person? It it oh man, it does it so yeah. dirty. Yeah, and a, I I think particularly in a way like it's hard because like a lot of the performances are bit, are quite good in this film, but it's like often underserved by a lot of the writing because even kind of the big uh a, a couple of the really big like emotional speeches as you were saying kind of work but um again they're weird ones where beats of them work and others don't yeah. really um <laughs> within a sea isn't it like some beats of yeah that scene do work and others like, yeah it's, it's odd particularly one between ted danson and ethan hawk where they like it starts off as like this kind of really um, there's a, a bit of friction between them, but um, they both know that they probably do need to chat, and it's about them kind of taking down the layers of bullshit that they've yeah, put yeah. up between each other over the years, and actually trying to talk about something real, and um, yeah, and then it just kind of rings out with a kind of a note of fatherly advice, being saying be forgiving, which is nice and all, but it yeah. doesn't really feel like that. That's a lesson he himself has learned that much. No, and, uh, it doesn't. No. It, or, or I feel like he's le- like his main lesson is just being like, rather than be forgiving, it's more be present. And I don't quite yeah. understand why that was his kind of, and to then not really have it really have him and his mum have that. Yeah. Him and his mum have that conversation about be more for- be forgiving. Yeah. And have that maybe be the advice that he takes from that. It's yeah. just not. I feel like there's maybe a beat missing there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, and and that the scene between Ted Danson and Ethan Hawke, their kind of big climactic heart to heart, it does because I I kind of struggle a bit to know what the I I couldn't really get a sense of what Ethan Hawke's character was. There's a few little um, insinuations as to as to what he's doing with his life and where he's going, but that scene kind of draws this pretty clear uh, opposition, right? I think because he's in Mexico, yeah. isn't he? And I think is the implication that he is in living in a he's sort dropped of... out of school, yeah, right? and he's gone to live he's in, in a, a commune in exactly, uh, yes, Mexico. That's what it was. Yeah, I, I was wondering, am I hearing it? Is he living in this commune, which is such a sort of naked opposition? Certainly to... went to visit it, yeah, um, and is thinking about going to live there. Yeah, that's yeah, very much his where he's at. And, and dropping out of school, yeah. I'm going to live in Mexico. So this, <laughs> so this sort of yeah, this sort of Generation X romantic who's dropped out of school eschewed his dad's plans for him uh living in a mexican commune and he even outright asks his wall street banker dad something like why was money always so much more important to you than family or, or something to that effect isn't it something <laughs> yeah that... and i quite like ted dad's reaction to that he just goes Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and there's um 
he 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 sort of uh, he pretends. I mean, Ted Danson, his character pretends that he thought it was his manly duty, but then he admits that it was really a power hunger from his perspective. Which again, like one of those things, like 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 a few little threads in this film, it gets at something that's quite interesting, but ultimately doesn't really uh, crystallize. Um, yeah, so you've got a pretty clear oppositional scene then of, of sort of two two generations with with these hugely different uh, outlooks on the world coming down, and they talk about. I didn't really get a sense of why the parents split because Ted Danson talks about how difficult it was for him to leave. Paul I'm assuming it's due to his due due to his his money hunger, working nature, and due to him being a money monster. See, he, yeah, and he couldn't quite see the point of compromise yeah his yeah and she like they talk about um his mum saying she's a third year law student so she clearly had ambitions yeah for herself as so, well that maybe yeah. he didn't i can like i can see on on a sort of holistic level i can see why gordon made the changes from the novel to the film in terms of uh john's character and i can see yeah. generationally what he's doing w- with regards to the perspective on work and life and and and, how, and like yeah, work and sure. family duty, um, but it's just not the way that the way that sort of outline is filled in is just not satisfying, is it? It doesn't quite yeah, work. Yeah, a lot of the way it's kind of articulated, it just feels like you say they're touching on these like quite interesting dynamics that is never quite fully formed. And I'm, it feels a bit because I have seen some Family Ties episodes, mm. like clips of Family Ties, uh, particularly clips on the kind of like the big issue episodes. Right, right, do, yeah, where, yeah. Like some kid at school was taking drugs or yeah. what have you, and um, and you know, kind of like you even think about like something that may be a bit more uh, on uh, something more of a easier point of reference for us because we've seen it is like something like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air where they yeah. do the kind of big emotional beats on TV. There is always like slight something slightly awkward about the way the dialogue's delivered and yeah, a, yeah. a hint of contriveness that seems to cut, play off a bit better when it's so, shot on a TV sound stage. Yeah, yeah. But when it's, it comes it comes out in a film it feels a bit bit you you buy it less and you you feel less kind of convinced by the emotion that is at the heart of the scene. Yeah. Despite the fact what it's saying however truthful it might be uh, it's just the way it's kind of phrased and and yeah, yeah the, the the dialogue used doesn't always offer much in the way that <laughs> that you feel is like kind of actually moving on your own understanding of these kind of like complex emotional familial relationships it doesn't yeah it, it's not one that's going to do that really beyond kind of like offer you glances and mirrors of that you might be able to see in of yourselves of your own family relationships uh, yeah. but then the arc yeah. is so kind of ends up being so so much it's kind of like hard to compute sometimes yeah like even beyond him being diagnosed as a schizophrenic with this very um elaborate imagination imagination that's extrapolated this whole alternative narrative in his head he his jake's cancer does also return which kind of leads to mm-hmm. the that like the ultimate climax that you you know you've being building to since the slow motion catch scene. <laughs> yeah, <And> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And where you feel the film is kind of building to when he first drops into a coma, because yeah. I honestly thought the film was going to end with uh, him at his dad's bedside and kind of realising what it is that he's yeah. had from this moment. 
say his goodbyes to his dad whilst everyone else has let go and he's the last one to like they make a thing of like everyone else has kind of yeah, accepted yeah, that yeah. he's not going to wake up and uh john is the only guy who's kind of like really clinging on and i thought it was going to be like this kind of moment of being like accepting that he ha- has to has to go but yeah. it he doesn't and there's this whole other act of this uh development with uh his father's schizophrenia that um yeah makes a film again it, that even feels like an episodic kind of structure yeah, it absolutely, in a weird way it absolutely does it, even like with how how crude the introduction of ethan Hawke into the film is it's, it is like yeah he literally knocks two. on the door <laughs> yeah. and comes in who's that it's a dead poets guy yeah it's insane it is that's absolutely right it's like what was the oh yeah um uh harry and the hendersons we we, we spoke about the sitcom episode yes yeah and again both films weirdly made me feel like it yeah (laughs) remind me a lot of harry and the hendersons both films are weird just about two hours long they should be 90 minutes or should be at most 100 minutes Mm. You could, there's so much, uh, we haven't really spoken about how long this goddamn thing is, but you could really take out a good yeah, 20 minutes. It's not, not quite two hours, but it like, you, you do it feel feels it, a yeah. lot that the, the pacing of it is very odd yeah. and quite laborious at times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, no matter how, cause you, and yeah. you did say that the performances are good. I, I think the performances are, I, yes. Like, casting yeah, is half the more. battle in yeah. this film. And, um. One of my main... Particularly for someone, I feel like Goldberg coming into from direct, yeah. ma- directing and writing mainly TV, where it is largely managing actors, and then going to something where he knows he can kind of yeah, yeah. let the actors do a lot of it in the same way that once a well-oiled TV show gets to a point where you just kind of let the actors yeah get on with it. I imagine that was kind of the approach here. I and think he, so. he, he does assemble a pretty solid, solid group for it. They're good. They're, they're all kind of like you've got sort of um, you've got Dukakis and Lemon who are both from a sort of different era of screen acting, yeah. and you've got Ted Danson who is trained in sitcom acting, which is sort of a kind of cruder version of what Lemon was doing in the sort of Billy Wilder films and the sort of the screwball films. And that's the, they're all sort of doing. They're on a similar level. I think that's almost kind of why Ethan Hawke doesn't quite fit in because he's bringing this sort of like link later adjacent sort of more <laughs> pre mumblecore kind of vibe into it. It doesn't quite fit with the rest of them, but still, like you've got those three, um, and it is like I'm so used to seeing Jack Lemmon in in those sort of late fifties, early sixties films, which feel very, very hermetically sealed from real yeah. life. So it is weird seeing him. Because I still kind of look look to the late eighties as being modern and being recent, even though they're not really that recent anymore. But to see sort of Jack Lemmon and Ted Danson and even Ethan Hawke share a frame, it kind of it breaks down these ideas of what time is in my yeah, head. No, yeah, because I mean? that's very much one of the first things that I like <laughs> thought to myself when I saw like this this film poster with the three of them just kind of posing for a family photo shoot, yeah. as it were. And I was just going, Jack Lemon, Ted Danson, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Le- Lemon wasn't even that old. Because Le- Le- Lemon, I mean, bless him, he wasn't even... I think he was only he, like what, 80 when he died. Late 70s when he died? Yeah. It, I, yeah, I'm not even sure if he crossed 80. Because he, he, he died in, what, 2001? Yeah, I think it was. And, and it was only about the age of the character in this film when he died, which was which was many, many years after the film was made. Yeah. So he, he wasn't that old in the film, you know. Um 
So, it, which I think like speaks most more to his performance, right? Yeah. Oh, he that is so, so convincing, and uh, yeah, yeah. The, like to the point where I was like, oh god, it was Jack Lemmon okay <laughs> when they were shooting? Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that it can oscillate between you have these bits that do feel kind of like sub Wilder uh, beats, and then you have the really sort of. You know, there's that bit when, when Ted Danson takes him home when he's really in the throes of what we think is dementia and he's acting out these imagined farmhand routines and on paper, yeah. it, as written, it's really embarrassing filmmaking but in the hands of Jack Lemmon, you know, he's doing such a good job with awful material, <laughs> like with, with material that is just so far beneath him but he never, he's bringing the same energy to this film that he brought to the... Uh, you know, to to the to the films that he is most famous for, I think. Like yeah. he's bringing his all, and there's some really nice, yeah. there's some really nice old person business when when Ted Danson when Ted Danson's character first. Uh, I should learn the character names as opposed to using the actor's full name. John. When, I talk <laughs> when when John first comes to the house and um uh, and, and sort of they're doing that awkward little dance as they're trying to get more comfortable with each other. My girlfriend sat and watched a bit of it with me. And it was a point when um, he's trying to button up uh, his dad. John. Oh God! That, yeah, that scene and was. And he kind like, of bats oh. him away as if to say, "No, I want to do it myself." And my girlfriend had to leave because I think I've said yeah. before her weak spot is old people and old people. No, that, emotional. that um, it was. I get that. Much, that, yeah. that scene was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Those sort of moments, nice. yeah. They're, they're... <laughs> nice. And it's like it, it reminded me a little bit of some of the business in. Back, again, Batu's not included. You know, before the fixits come, and um, yeah, uh, and they're, they're sort of they're dancing and singing together, and you know, she she kisses him on the lips, and it's like just that kind of nice, underplayed, like old yeah. person dignity. You know, there's like a, a, a dignity in trying to in trying to sort of carry on, even though you know you are not what you once used to be, and there's something implicitly very poignant about that. And Jack Lemmon's character. Yeah. There's such even when he was a Jake. young man, yeah, Jake, Jake. Even when Lemon was such a young man, in, in something like the apartment, he's a like, mid thirties guy. There is something still, in like, not even implicit, explicitly pathetic about him, and, and he kind of it's like a, a pathetic <laughs> charmingness, like charmingly pathetic yeah. or pathetically charming or whatever, and 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 you know that that carries all the way through to Glengarry Glen Ross, where he plays the prototypical old Gill character, and um. Yeah, I don't know. There's something very, very effective about that. And affecting about that. Yeah, so, I love me some lemon. L- lemon's never boring to watch. I don't think. No, I definitely and like particularly for like that. Like we say, the like the film takes these kind of quite extreme moments of um, the where he's um, first um, kind of discombobulated after the shock of the surgery, or into more where he is kind of acting more as his alternative self, but he is asked to like really do quite a lot of big swings in the performance where you, you are, because as much as like, it might feel a bit of a kind of ridiculous um, leveling up of uh, diagnosis, diagnosis, um, the way he does kind of deliver them is the only thing really for me that kind of helped soften the blow and allowed it all to kind of still feel fairly tangible, even as, um, it progressed more to it's kind of again quite saccharine notes at the end, but notes that register uh, one because of Jack Lennon, particularly when he's on his deathbed and he's talking about the Dodgers game with Joe DiMaggio being 
a impossible like a home run and an impossible catch being made uh and he delivers that story re- like re- really kind of beautifully again yeah. kind of has this like impeccable way of really just feeling feeble and weak but like with an incredible amount of heart and in the performance and then it's kind of capped off with which i thought was like a really nice touch for the kind of last moments that you have with these characters it's then capped off by this what i thought was a really like quite striking image of just like this giant man who is ted danson just lying down in a hospital bed next to his dying father and just cuddling up into him and i thought that was a really nice like kind of perfect little moment for the kind of the, the two characters that we've gone through in the two characters' journey, but I don't fully understand why that couldn't happened about half yeah. an hour before. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but yeah, it's a it's a really lovely yeah uh, yeah, and like even to the point where at the end of it, when his him and Ethan Hawke still are a little have that like the last image of them is like them saying goodbye and they kind of going for a handshake first and then like ah oh, no we'll do a yeah, hug yeah. it's like you didn't need to do that we get that yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> yeah, just saw yeah, them hugging yeah. we know they're beyond that now <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There, there was just something there was really something about that image of just like this giant yeah. Ted Danson just lying down for a hug with his dad that really I thought was yeah. a, a lovely kind of point for yeah. these two the journey of the characters together and their bond to end on. Yeah. Particularly for, as we were talking about, the kind of main o- overarching thing that we f- think works well is about these kind of two men that do kind of acknowledge the um, stereotype that they've played to yeah. and try to, yeah. and have regret for that and try to repair that in a way. Because yeah. there's always going to be something deeply affecting about not even in in terms of the fiction that we consume, but in terms of just as as a life idea, the idea of having no regrets when you say goodbye to someone. You know, you, yeah. you always want to feel like... I, I think maybe it's easier for our generation because we are more comfortable being emotional and talking about our emotions and, and um, uh, our, our sort of internal struggles and how they react, how they sort of... Inter- um, interspersed with other people's struggles and you know all, all that kind of stuff and i think um there's something very very affecting about the idea of making sure that everything that needs to be done and said is done and said you know so you never have any regrets when, when you feel when it that person yeah. is gone yeah um so th- i think that's always a pretty a pretty good shortcut to drama and like you say that final image of the two of them on the bed is, is so it is really crystallizes that um yeah, we've got ye- we've almost like we've got years of making up to do, Dad, and I feel that, and I get you now, and you get me, and and we're here together, and, and you know, above it all, I love you, and that kind of thing. I, it, that that's sweet, yeah, sweet and affecting in a, in a, in a vacuum, but um, in the context of this film, it, yeah, again, <laughs> it, 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 it literally is the is the pattern of this film, though, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Like where it just kind of offers you like kind of moments where you are just like okay yes that was yeah. that was quite captivating and you feel like you're really touching on something that's quite like emotionally compelling and like oh yeah okay you're 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 building to something yeah. that i feel like um is going to be quite like a interesting sense of discovery for these characters but then kind of either buries it with like a kind of a mawkishness or a sense that it's never quite satisfied with what it's 
pushing as the emotional journey, which I just wish it took a beat. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I do wonder how the book plays. Because as far as I understand it, the book is, still has that schizophrenia yeah. element come into play, and I wonder how that does come across when you're reading. Yeah, reading the book. yeah. Um, it, you know, yeah. I don't know. It, it, it just, I don't know how accurate uh, an adaptation of the book this is. I don't, I don't know in terms of that medical diagnosis. I don't quite know how true to life that is. How fictionalized that is it the way it plays in this film it just does seem so flagrantly fantastical and uh you know and glib so you know even if it is based on a real experience in the book with a real human being the way it's adapted here just it, it really it doesn't the, the, the sort of tethers to reality are, are pretty much gone you know yeah but it, i'm curious i'm curious to see not curious enough to read it because life's too short, but mm. curious to at least ponder the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is weird how this film ultimately says so little by saying so much. It's the opposite. I've been doing a, a bit of a yeah. John Carpenter rewatch recently, and the amount of brevity in that guy's films, the amount he managed to convey with so little said or, or you know, or visualised. This is such a stark contrast to that. It's, it uses all, it really is, all the words, it? chucks it, uh, all the words, chucks it all at the wall, and ultimately says, "It kind of cancels itself out." You know, like you know, saying, "Pinballing." Back yeah, I, I guess like like that is kind of the, um, I guess the sort of anxiety any filmmaker or writer would have with approaching kind of material like this that is. And particularly in the case of the book, if it is a personal account um, or like is loosely based off someone's own personal experience, um, there is a sense of like, how do you kind of like honor that um, experience or how do you kind of like do your best to at least make something hit in a way that feels that doesn't feel manipulative and just feel like a kind of uh, comes from a genuine wealth of uh, warmth and feeling and love and the film it whilst it do, it does have those moments it does kind of trip up on itself um in the in-betweens between these like the spaces between spaces of these moments if that makes sense yeah yeah that does <laughs> and, and it i i don't know if you saw it I, I i haven't seen it yet myself but one that has a film that's had like a lot of critical huge critical yeah critical acclaim in the last year and uh, one its lead actor an Oscar is the father, which um, oh yeah, from the surface yeah. of it must deal. It sounds like it deals with like quite similar um, experiences of a uh, uh, child um, reconciling with uh, their father's illness and navigating that. And by all accounts, that is a very successful and uh, imaginative and like packed with feeling um, approach to kind of articulating that. Um, sensation and relationship. Um, so yeah, I, I it's made me it had like because it is a that that is a film I'm nervous to watch because I just feel like it's going to ruin me. But this yeah. watching this just made me feel like okay, I I do want to see what this thing is done when it is done with a bit more of a kind of a, a hand on it that isn't um, too heavy with the treacle or the sentiment and what have you, and see what how that 
how that does play yeah. out. Just that a hand that... Tra- so I will watch The Father. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think it's the one uh, Oscars 2021 blind spot that lingers mm. on for me. I think I've seen everything else. I know you and I are quite obsessed yeah, about right. seeing them all. <laughs> yeah, usually. <laughs> it was mute. It was all muted this year, yeah, wasn't it? I, it, was, it was all, I keep forgetting they happened, and I bloody worked on them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, it, it, it is just having having the confidence to trust in the truth of the emotions, and we've kind of touched upon the idea that so much of what is gone through in this film, people go through in real life with their loved ones and their parents, and in some cases their partners, and you don't need to ladle on Horner's score. You don't need that soft lighting. You don't need to frame it in this way. You can just let it be, which hopefully, and from what I've read and, and seen, the father is does that. It's more of a yeah. honest, to the point thing. But uh, but yeah, uh, it sounds like you and I had very similar experiences watching this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was one where I wasn't expecting a great deal from it, and they're like, and it's one that I also like when you kind of look at the poster and you kind of read what it's about, you kind of, you do build a kind of expectation in your head of what it's going to kind of turn out to be. And my and my thoughts were, I think this this feels like a kind of late 80s Oscar-y yep. drama bait, but maybe it'll be a bit more comedic and a lighthearted because of who's in yep. it and um, what have you. And, the, and you know, it's build as a comedy drama and mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately i didn't find much to <laughs> much to laugh at uh, alleviate a lot of it and uh, like it was quite yeah it yeah, yeah it just it is just it's heavy in a way that's not as in like yes it does deal with like kind of big emotional themes and what have you but it's heavy in a way that just does feel heavy yeah <laughs> everything about its approach it uh despite the kind of talented actors on display is just yeah very heavy-handed and Often weighs down the kind of whatever goodwill, like goodwill it how it does occasionally hoist it up every now yeah. and again. And that is something that heavy handedness is carried down from the tagline uh, onwards. The tagline I should have I meant to read this at the start, but I forgot. Uh, the tagline mm-hmm. on the post. I did mean to also look that up. <laughs> yeah. oh, so have you not seen what it is yet? No. Oh, okay. I'm <laughs> excited to read this. Um, sometimes the greatest man you ever meet. Is the first one. Yeah, that, that I feel like that sums that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not surprising that this is the same year as Driving Miss Daisy. No, so I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy. Oh. Well, I was looking ahead, yeah. and uh, this is this is obviously this is eighty nine. This is uh, our first eighty nine, and it's one of three, mm-hmm. I believe. So we're almost done with yes. the eight. We're almost finished with our first decade. Almost of, finished uh, with the eighties, dude. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Who knew this day would come? Well, I never thought we'd get out of eighty-five. <laughs> we die in eighty-five. The quagmire of eighty-five. Yeah, <laughs> but it is weird how 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 much more quickly the decades are going to go by once we finish the eighties. Yeah, because they they do get slimmer. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> wow, big uh, big hurdle. Nowhere near the, the home stretch, no, 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 ladies no. and gentlemen. Yeah. We're still going to be here for a long we time, a... whether you like it or yeah. not. We haven't got to plan our follow-up series just yet. Give it a couple of years still. <laughs> uh, 
we we did have one message in about mm. dad. Um, I I we still put the call out on social on Twitter to see if anyone wanted to get in touch about the movie. Uh, not really expecting anyone to because all the people I've kind of like I've spoken to from fam- friends and family, just no one's got really any any memory of this film. Um, but uh, we did get get a, a message from Frank um, Mendoza at Film Buff 1974 uh, and host of the Silver Screeners podcast. Uh, we we must have kicked something off in his old uh, nostalgia <laughs> centre of the brain. because he, he sent us a message saying, that dab poster was a jolt. I saw that in theatres when I was a kid, but not since. Wasn't there a montage where they keep coming out in different hats and coats and stuff? I can't recall the specifics, but I remember Olympia Dukakis is supposed to keep cracking up every time they come out. I'm going to have to check it on YouTube. Well, we can tell the answer right now if you didn't check it out on YouTube. <laughs> that is a scene in that film, and it goes on for a beat too long to the point where I got genuinely nervous. <laughs> I'm fed up with this now. We get the point. Because <laughs> uh. none of what they were all doing was very funny, but like all the laughter is like really like dialed up to 11 enthusiastic and I was just going like, oh god. It's not that <laughs> yeah. funny, Olympia. It's not. <laughs> they, were cre- they were creeping me out. Like, everyone was laughing that maniacally yeah. and I was just like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, You thought the scene was done and there was suddenly a new outfit they had on and they weren't really doing anything <laughs> funny. They were just wearing them and going, oh, look at me, I'm in a funny outfit. It's not funny. And the girls were laughing as if it was funny, but it wasn't funny. But I'm glad it gave someone the jolt seeing that poster. I'm glad that like there is that like there was a nostalgia (laughs) nostalgia trigger in the brain there for you, (laughs) even if it was just for you, Frank. But thank you for messaging in. (laughs) Mendoza. Uh, Cut that if you want to. I just felt like I had to. I'll see how it plays. Um, so Andy, what's our next movie, dude? Oh, buddy, um, I'm taking you back. Back where? <laughs> back to the future, part two. Assholes <laughs> or something? <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> oh, the only way we can find out is going back to the year 2050. Oh, <laughs> Uh, yes, our next film will indeed be the 90, 1989 sequel to the 1985 hit, Back to the Future, directed once again by Robert Zemeckis. And if you want to head to the future of 2015 with us, but don't happen to have the film on disc, you can stream the film if you have a Now Cinema, Sky Go, or Virgin Go subscription. Otherwise, you can buy or rent the film digitally from Chile or Sky Store, or buy it digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Rakuten TV, and YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> That's the last one. <laughs> if you're London-based, I know the Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square. Yeah. I know they're doing the first one. I don't know if they're doing all three, but they might. I mean, check out... They usually do. Yeah, check out the Prince Charles <laughs> Cinema uh, schedule and see if they're doing uh, 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 a showing. Cause it's, you never they're know. They're movies that you want to see on the big screen. And to be honest with you, I've only ever seen the first one on the big screen. I've never seen two or three in the mm, cinema. So. Likewise. Um, but yeah, but if you've got any thought, I mean, these are the kind of movies that I think people will not struggle to find thoughts about. So if you've got anything you want to share with us uh, relating to Back to the Future 2 or even 3, and we can bank it and save it for a, a few episodes from now, 
uh, then please tweet us at ramblinamblin or email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com and let us know what you think about the uh, continuing adventures of, uh, or should I say, misadventures, you know, when the almanac comes <laughs> into things. I didn't defend a time uh, machine for making financial gain. I have a time machine for travelling through time. Etc. That's preview for you. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of this coming up. So, so it will be our first sequel as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And probably... Before we get into a sea of them. <laughs> I'm just thinking ahead Well, scattered here, here, there and everywhere in the 90s. I am going to make an early claim that I think it might be... No, because three's better than two, isn't it? But Back to the Future sequels, I think, are the best sequels that Amblin has made. I'm trying to think... Where Gremlins too, better. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, okay. Forget I said everything. Then cut that out as well. Uh, but yeah, uh, do share your thoughts because I'm sure. Uh, we're thinking yeah. two. Oh, we'll get into this. Oh, I, 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 no, I'll save this thought for when we do the episode itself. It doesn't need to be on Dad. Yeah, we, we can save it. <laughs> so Andy, we did Dad. We finally did. We Dad. did Dad. Um. I don't feel the richer nor the poorer for it. <laughs> I feel entirely neutral, and I think I'm going to go and uh, have a lay down now and uh, sleep. Yeah. <laughs> have a little. <laughs> have a little cup of tea. Um, yeah. <laughs> this has been Rambling and Amblin Podcast once again, and that was our episode on Dad. And we really do hope you enjoyed the show. And we hope to see have you back here again for our dive into back to the future part two until then take care and look after each other give your dad a hug and we'll see you next time 